The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hello and welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. We're doing a new uh, wacky experimental thing here where we're doing a live video panel over Zoom. I'm Ben Rock. I'm Ilya Friedman. And we're here in the Hot Red Camera screening room on opposite ends. Ben's in the front, I'm in the back. And uh, Ben, we've got an incredible panel of people here today to talk about all kinds of stuff. Uh, Who is on the show? First up, we have Anna Amortigi, Colombian-born cinematographer, uh, best known for her work on the Sundance digital series Gentrified. She's worked for networks like Netflix, Hulu, CW, BET Network, and is currently working on season two of Resident Alien for sci-fi. Please welcome Anna Amortigi. Next up, we have Bryant Fisher, a cinematographer with roots in documentary filmmaking. I always love to hear about documentary, most known for his work on Netflix's docu-series Lennox Hill, following doctors in New York, and the documentary centered around Lin-Manuel Miranda's work, Hamilton's America. He's filmed talent like Ed Norton, Mark Ruffalo, and Wes Anderson. So please welcome Bryant Fisher. Uh, Also on the panel is Byron Kopman. Byron is the cinematographer of the upcoming film Demonic, filmed in collaboration with prestigious director Neil Blomkamp. He's worked on four features, hundreds of commercials, and countless music videos. He's got a passion for all things film. Please welcome Byron Kopman. And of course, last but not least, we have LA-based cinematographer with a passion for storytelling, Julia Swain. She recently shot the feature Lucky that premiered at South by Southwest as uh, for director Natasha Kermani. Uh, She's currently in production on the exciting miniseries for the History Channel. Please welcome Julia Swain. So uh, thank you all so much for coming out and, uh, and for taking the time to do this. And again, we, we sort of have some basic questions ready for you because all your careers are so different. So I thought we would just kind of start uh, with my favorite question to ask any cinematographer who comes on the show, which is what was the moment in your life where it first occurred to you that cinematography was a career that you could pursue? I, I always like hearing about when people first thought about like, oh, I could do that. Um, yes, well, I went to school for an electrical engineer and I graduated, uh, but my whole life I danced. I was part of a big company in my country. And once I was offered to be the choreographer for a soap opera on, a, on the network of my country. So then I start working, you know, having to choreograph for TV. And then I start, it's very different when you dance for an audience than when you do it for uh, the camera. So I start sitting next to the DP and I started like learning and trying to make the dance work for the cameras and see what was best for it. So that's where my like my love for it began. I sat to him every day and he would explain me lighting and camera work. And I knew right away that um, I wanted it to make that shift. And then while I was transitioning with like trying to find a place to go to school for, I worked on an American movie and I met the crew and I left everything behind and came to the States. And here I am. Oh, wow. What movie was it? It's called Gringo Wedding. It's like a romantic comedy. Uh, the crew was from Miami, but they made it to the theaters and all that. But. Um, well, I've always kind of been interested in filmmaking since I was a kid. And I always made kind of, uh, I was like the, the family home movie documentarian. So I kind of started in that way. But I guess when I realized this could be a, a career path is probably when I started shooting Hamilton's America, because it was sort of a very small development project at first. And then when I realized that this actually was 
a career path is probably at the premiere when it was received and um, people actually liked it. And I could see that everything was, was there for the story. But I, I kind of came up through post-production and was working at a post house as an engineer and had all sorts of positions there. But I watched all of this amazing footage come through there and was always curious about what that would be like to be on location and seeing all of these amazing stories happening in front of you. And so I sort of made that transition out. And that was the first project really that I did that on. How did you find yourself shooting Hamilton's America before you knew that you wanted to be shooting? No, that, that, uh, that I, I want to know why. <laughs> I had been, uh, I was very close with an editor who was Lynn's roommate in college. And off the success of In the Hype, he kind of started writing Hamilton. And um, Alex Horowitz at the time was kind of curious. He's like, you know, Lynn, do you think we'd, we'd be all right if we could follow you a little bit throughout all this? It's just a, a development thing. Who knows where this is going to go? Obviously, no one, no one really knew what, was, what Hamilton was going to be. Um, so we just started kind of filming him every once in a while, wherever he was writing, and just kind of hanging out with him from time to time. I had been shooting a little bit before them, but just sort of getting my hands dirty with like assisting um, and shooting some second camera with some people who worked through the production company I was at, I was doing post at. So that's sort of where, you know, it was, it was a very small project to start. So uh, I had to be someone who was kind of eager to learn a little bit, but also kind of be able to get it done at the same time. That's amazing. While you were working on on this documentary about <laughs> relatively unknown Lin Manuel Miranda, like was it obvious that this was going to be? Was there a halo around that project the whole time? Was it obvious that he was making something kind of magical? Probably. I mean, when he would start just coming up with lyrics on the fly, when he can just think of them, which you'll see in the other film I did with him called "We Are Freestyle Love Supreme." That's sort mm -hmm. of where his, you know, you could see his origins there, and. Oh, wow. um, Watching that magic kind of unfold in front of you is kind of unreal. And so, yeah, there's definitely like, oh, okay, this is this is certainly going to go somewhere. But, you know, it's kind of hard to tell because he, he also writes, you'll see in the doc, he, if you watch it, it's, he writes very, very slowly. And so all of these things kind of come together like that. But, yeah, what, what comes out of that guy's brain is, is kind of magic all the time. Uh, I started off filming when I was 12 years old. I'm 33 now, so 21 years ago, filming action sports, mountain biking, snowboarding, skiing. Nice. I never went to film school. I just got advice to go work at a rental house in lighting, uh, mm. or I actually applied to go work in the camera department because all, all I knew was cameras, and I got a job in lighting, and they asked me to start the following Monday, and I just did. So I had no interest in lighting at that point. And uh, nice. yeah, I just like fell in love with it. All I knew before that was like construction yellow lights for filming like snowboard nighttime scenes on rails. <laughs> and um, so I, I pursued my career, like film career, always wanting to DP, but it's so hard to uh, make a living at it at first. So I, I went through the, the ranks and lighting and I worked um, eight seasons on Supernatural as a best boy in lighting and nice. always pursued DPing and then Five years ago, I went full time and just been, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, it's always interesting to hear the stories of how people got out of one department and then, you know, do you go cold turkey? Because at a certain point, you have to say, I'm not going to take those other jobs because it prevents me from taking, you know, the kinds of jobs that I want. Did you find that ever to be an issue where it's like, oh, big time? Uh, I think the hardest thing, and I should have done it maybe three years earlier, was do the jump. But, uh, yeah, as soon as you like have a mortgage and you have all these bills to pay, it's hard to want to leave the financial security behind. So that's kind of, I think 
I'm definitely like a safer person. I was like, didn't really risk it. Um, I should have done it sooner. I feel is, is one learning that I, uh, looking back, I should have done is made the jump earlier, but it's so scary in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've talked to more than one, like steady cam op who made the jump to cinematographer. And it's like, you know, I remember Charles Papper telling us like, he just had to sell his rig. It, like his steady cam just wasn't available anymore. And he had to only do the cinematography thing, but it's, you know, it, it, it does sound like a, a giant leap of faith. So, uh, so Julia, when, what was your, your moment where the light bulb went off, so to speak? Yeah. I don't know if I have a specific moment like Brian, I was the cliche kid shooting everything for the family and making films all the time. I've never really done anything else. Like when I was 15, I worked in a movie theater to like watch free movies and like, you know, Mm. everything I've ever done has been tied in some way. I did go to undergrad for just like a general degree in production. And that's where I thought I would edit because the magic of digital editing was a new thing, not to date myself, but you know, you were, you were like being able to piece together your footage so immediately and so amazingly. And while I was going to undergrad, the only job in my town was like news. So I was shooting news and I became addicted to being behind the camera and operating. And so mm. while I was working in news and going to school, and then in school, there was a class where four students would shoot or would direct short every week and whenever i wasn't directing everyone was choosing me to dp so i think i just became addicted to being behind the camera and creating um images and lighting so one of the things we talk about a lot on the podcast is uh, the process of turning words on a page into images on a screen and it seems in our you know hundreds of uh, interviews we've done the process is a bit different for everyone and so we're we're curious uh, if you can describe the process of when you when you read some words and then how you take those words and actually uh, envision or visualize you know the visuals of the project whatever that project may be yeah well i don't have a specific method but i like to focus on the emotions or the message what we have to convey with each scene right like you read something in how with my camera, where do I put it? What, ang- what angle do I choose? What lens, how far I am? Uh, how can I convey that message that the scenes wants to um, wants to give? How do I make the audience feel what the characters are feeling? Same thing with my lighting. How can it, that move that makes, you know, the scene take place in that magical place or that place where the characters exist, right? We work with directors, right? And so our profession is so subjective. So we have to have in mind also also like the director's vision. So for me, how do I get as close as to what the director really wants? How do I can, within my visual language, how can I make his vision come through, his or her, their vision come through? And again, and then looking for inspiration, right? Uh, More images, sometimes it's music, sometimes our experiences in your life. But I do focus more on how I can make the audience or how can enhance the meaning of the scene within how I move, I create my lighting, and where I am with the camera work. Do you, uh, I, I know you do this in collaboration with the, the director, but uh, do you ever create mood boards or cite certain references? How, how does that, that conversation go with, with the director? Yes, all the time. I work mostly on TV, so we usually have, you know, we change directors every episode. So what we do is we establish at the beginning of the show, we work with the creator of the show and like the producing director on a look that we want to keep throughout the whole season of the show. And every director comes every week. So we do work on a lookbook, on a mood, on a, you know, on a mood book, and then we create the arc for the season as well. So once we establish that, every director that comes, we have to kind of protect the look of the show, but 
have to kind of let those directors make their visions come through through the visual language that we chose already from the beginning. But we do, we do find inspiration in everything and then we compile it together and then we present it to the network and then everybody approves it, approves it and then we base that for the rest of the season. That, that's great. Uh, uh, Bryant, how about, how about you? How do you turn the words into images? Well, I'm typically, uh, I mean, if I'm shooting a documentary, there are usually no words. Uh, it's, it's whatever, whatever scenario is happening in front of me. Um, and so I'll, you know, I'll, I'll know the situation or as much of it as I can beforehand. Um, but go in with a very open mind and try to, you know, stay as close to uh, our subjects as possible. Hopefully then we've formed a relationship so they kind of understand exactly what we're trying to do. And I can sort of be, be with them, uh, as close as possible. But when I get to do anything that's kind of uh, that's scripted or that's uh, kind of commercial based or either way, even in docs, I try to have uh, as detailed a conversation with my directors as possible, just so I can, again, you, you like Anna said, you're, you're translating. And so you're bringing those images uh, to life, but you're working with a team. And so, yeah, it could be from the, the sort of inspiration is from anywhere, but it, it is usually rooted in where where your characters are in that very moment um, and thinking about where you were before, where you are now and where you're going. And uh, I don't know, sometimes, you know, it comes from like, you know, I'm shooting something that doesn't necessarily require me to, uh, to listen. I remember one time I was just listening to like eighties Metallica just to get in a mood while I'm shooting. And it just like got me in like that. That was the headspace I kind of wanted to be in. So I got there and, uh, and the footage was, was interesting in that way. What, was the Metallica know. for Freestyle Love Supreme? Uh, no, actually, it was. <laughs> I was filming at the at the Masters Golf Tournament, so it was oh. total, totally opposite of what the what the feeling being there is like. So I was just like, you know what? I'm gonna go like full metal with with what I want to see right now. And, nice. Uh, yeah, yeah, just kind of dove in that way. Well, I I really enjoyed Freestyle Love Supreme, and I know you worked with a lot of archive, or I should say, uh, footage from the, the really early days, from like the the trip to the Fringe Fest and all that. Uh, was any part of the existing assets that found its way into that that project was any of that part of the inspiration, or did you use any of that to kind of reference what you wanted to do, or that was just a just a spice for the whole dish, and really you you brought the you brought the look. So uh, uh, I I think it was a little of both. I really enjoyed watching all of that before we before we dove into you know shooting the present day stuff. It kind of informed me of uh, the relationship that all these guys had beforehand. So I kind of knew what to expect going in, and I, I watched as much of it as I could and just kind of had it in the back of my head, knowing that this is the kind of environment I'm about to walk into. But it's a new environment for them since we're going to a new stage, and so I wanted to sort of see what that what that felt like, but keep that kind of intimacy that I, that I felt from that original footage. So I wanted to at least keep that coherent, but then bring, you know, sort of a new look to it. Yeah. I think when I was uh, in high school, I was in band and very into it. And my, our band teacher would make us listen to a song at the beginning of class and then write down what we saw. And I feel that has changed how I read a script. Like when I read a script, I can see exactly the shots and the angles and stuff. Sometimes it doesn't mesh with the director, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I can just visualize it so clearly. And then sometimes to a fault, like uh, if I go to on a tech scout or something, the camera in my mind is in one position. Like I can see it all so clearly. So, so sometimes it's to a fault where like I'm a little closed minded, I guess, but some, I feel I just have to, I just trust my process and 
seems to work out, but yeah, I just, it just kind of comes to me. I don't yeah. When when you have an idea, when you have a specific idea like that where you want to put the camera in when you think it's the right thing, if you and the director, for instance, don't agree on that, how do you go about kind of pitching them your idea? We normally just quickly show, I normally just do handheld camera, show them my idea. If they're really not into it, uh, we just we just A, B it, see what they're thinking. And then most cases, um, uh, both of us will agree one way or the other, which is the right way. There's it's really rare that it's like a, you guys, you're fighting over the thing. And most of the time it's not worth fighting. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully not. Yeah. But uh, it sounds, it sounds like you have a, you know, uh, there's situations I'm sure in every director DP relationship where there's a negotiation about, Hey, you know, I think maybe we should look at it this way or we should do it that. Is there any, is there any tactic that you use to try to, you know, you know, lead your director to water occasionally when you've got a really clear vision of how something should be or do you always just uh, defer to the director at the end you know what you say goes how how, how or is it somewhere in the middle what what's the the scenario for you uh, it depends who it is like i have three directors i work with a lot and we just we can like banter and be a bit more like harsh if you will or just more like direct like this is i i feel strongly that this is the way um, people that i don't work with a lot. I definitely I let the director take the lead, but if I, I will only uh, fight for my belief, if I really believe in it, like if it's like, mm. if I am a hundred thousand percent confident that this is better then I will, I'll say it. So yeah, that's kind of how I, I, I balance it. I, my, my motto of life is just like the path of least resistance. To be honest, I just don't like conflict, but if it's, if it's worth fighting for, I will fight for it. It's funny, I'm wrapping week three of prep on this show and you'd think I would have a good answer for this, but I feel like <laughs> I'm, I'm here to just echo what these three said. I feel like it's an emotional process. Like I'm sure all of you guys can agree when I read a script, I'm already shooting into my head. And this is like, I think we just have wild imaginations and we're constantly visualizing stuff, which I feel like recently I learned that not every human has that visual imagination. We're like a unique breed. But I think it's uh, like what Anna said, just kind of going with, you know, the characters where they're going, understanding them. I think it's interesting how too, as you move along your career, you get to be pickier about what you shoot and you end up choosing things that you can just ultimately get more invested in. And the more invested I am in the project, the, the better clear decisions I can make and have really strong narrative arguments as to why I'm making those photographic decisions. But yeah, I think it's in collaboration with the director and it's a weird, emotional, supernatural <laughs> process. That is we, the best. We used to ask a question to every DP, and eventually we retired it because I, I, I don't know for a number of reasons. But I, I think it sometimes applies still. I was always asking when you're reading a script, do you see it in compositions or do you see it in lighting? But I, I'm more curious, like what is the thing that you're seeing when you're reading it? Like when your when your visual imagination is being sparked by what you're reading, what about it is what you're seeing? I think you're seeing frames and lighting and movement. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing all of it, all, all like you're kind of seeing the movie. Yeah, I mean, and it's fast because you're reading. So I don't, I don't necessarily stop and try to figure out mm -hmm. what it is exactly. Maybe, but yeah, I think you're watching. At least I'm watching a movie in my head, and you might have an inkling as to like if you know when an agent or someone sends you a script and it's the logline or whatever, and whether it's a drama or something, right? You have a sense of tone maybe going into it, so that kind of sets up how you're visualizing a little bit, um, and then that changes and morphs as you go along page to page. Let's talk about film school or, or no, and, and whether you went to film school or not, uh, it, it's just something that I 
I think is valuable for, for people to hear because we talked to plenty of people who did. We went to talk to plenty of people who didn't. But, you know, kind of like what is the value of film school, especially in today's more digital world where, you know, somebody could start college and they've already they've they've had a DSLR for 10 years and, you know, uh, Final Cut Pro 10 or Resolve or whatever. And so they've been making movies almost the same way that a professional could make them access to gear is less of an important thing. So like, what is it that you get out of film school? And are you an endorser of film school or an endorser of just go out and start working? Well, I think, as you said in the beginning, all of our careers are so different and everyone gets to where there's no end all be all for any one person that's like the same for every single other person. So I think, I don't know if I endorse one way or the other. I did cinematography at UCLA. I think you go to film school for the people. I would say it becomes a tight knit camaraderie amongst your student population and you have each other's backs and you build careers together. I think it's a great place to make mistakes, but I have seen people obviously succeed without it. So, And, and would you endorse UCLA? I mean, I, I know you went there and that uh, would you, if you had it to do over again, would, would that be your top choice? Yeah, I would, because I think UCLA was very, it's a family. I don't want to sound too biased, but I do think it's like one of the schools that is just not pretentious and has like it's just very um who you are and who you want to be and what stories you want to tell it's it's very grounded in that sense and we had you know dps and residents from the asc and, and amazing organizations come in and you know mandy walker is teaching us how to to how she lights and having us operate for her and stuff like that so it's just so oh, hands-on wow. and your classrooms are literally stages so even when you're just chatting you're in a sound stage and it's just like it was a really good environment so. I don't. I don't know if you were there when uh, Sunny Bear was uh, was teaching there, but he's a I good was. friend and friend of the show, and one of and, the and best professors there. Yeah, he he's pretty right. incredible. So, and yeah. I, I was going to th- just throw a quick shout out to him. I know he yeah. listens to our show, so we'll probably watch yeah. this. Byron, you want to you want to take the next uh, answer to this? I know you had a different path. Yeah, a different path. Um, I have a biased route, but I didn't go to film school. My two I have two assistants that come with me everywhere, and they both went to film school. One of them dropped out and then just started working with me. He says that he learned more in a week with me than the four years that he was at film school. What I do regret from my film school friends that I don't, didn't get is just like film history and being like told to watch a movie and like write about it and being not forced, but uh, forced to watch an old classic and learn about like the history of film. That's something I'm missing in my repertoire. So when I'm talking with directors and um, like producers and stuff, when they start asking me about like old movies and I just like haven't seen them um, just because I've just been so busy working, like just working in film and just long hours. You just, the last thing you want to do is, well, you want to watch movies, but you don't have time to. That's the one thing I, I feel like I lost, but I, I, when my film school was starting from the bottom, working minimum wage and the rental house, and that's my film school. But I think they're both good. I think so too, and I think there's something about scraping labels off of cases and 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 wiping down, you know, XLR cables and BNC cables and all the rest of the stuff that uh, makes you realize, uh, from a real nuts and bolts perspective, how important every piece of the puzzle is and how you're only as good as your weakest link. So I think that really the best film schools probably are some sort of hybrid of both of those things. As Julie was saying, you know, like a lot of it is the people that you meet, but working in a rental house or working in that kind of environment, you're seeing all kinds of camera assistants and DP 
employees and people who are working coming in. So it, so the networking is a different kind of networking. But And it's something that we haven't really talked about, I don't think, much on the show. I remember uh, when I was in film school, one of our teachers said, just start hanging around rental houses. Like, just you don't even need to have a job there. Just start hanging around and offering to help. And And he was basically saying, you know, here's how you network with the people who are actually doing the thing. I think there's a real art to that, though, because I'll tell you, being an AC in a rental house, it's really annoying when too many people come up to you and interrupt what you're doing. I I can't tell you how many times I was arrested for vagrancy. Anyway. (laughs) I think the networking, too, in film school is unique because you're actually making stuff together. So, like, you're in the trenches together and, like, learning about each other as storytellers, I guess. I I actually couldn't agree more with uh, what Julia was saying. And I think that, in a way, film school, at least for me, it was sort of like a 70-30 split in terms of what I learned in school versus working being 70% what I learned was from working. 30% was probably from school. I went to an art school. I went to Pratt Institute and I got a, I got a BFA in, uh, in film, but that was more of a, it was, it was an art school. So it was a great place to sort of experiment and find your, your grounding. And it was a safe place to kind of try things and fail and to learn to work other people and to respect other people's opinions and to understand that filmmaking is a, is a group effort. And so yeah, I still keep in touch with some of the graduates from my school, but I was lucky enough to be interning while I was at school. So I sort of had this split view where I was learning a little bit at school, but I was also learning a lot while I was actually interning and working in post and a little bit on production as, as an assistant. So I feel like there was it's that, that mix and also being just thrown into fires was kind of the way that I learned. I actually was going to say that if you can do both, it would be great. It's a beautiful balance. You know, I'm like the typical immigrant story where I came to the States with nothing. I had to go to school. I went to like a, a film, pro- you know, I went to the Art Institute of California and I did oh, wow. film production, right? So what I think is beautiful, adding to the network and the friends and like the big connections that you make and that now seeing everybody blooming and working together after so many years is also that, it's nice to have a base. You know how they say you got to know the rules to break them. So how beautiful it is to have this base where then you can expand and be your own artist, right? But it's good to know a little bit of how things or why are things are done, right? Um, yeah. What are, again, what are the meanings of those images or how can I just, the theory behind it, so then you can make it your own and then just push, create something new and make it your own, right? So I feel like that's very valuable. The teachers, I think, are the biggest blessings. I still have connections with my teachers and they still support me all this day until today. So I feel like if you could, do, I, from day one, I was going to school and I had to have like 20 jobs at the same time. And one of those jobs from day one was I worked in a GNE rental house. I drove the trucks, the grip trucks. I loaded and unloaded trucks. So I've been doing that and like shooting for free every weekend. So I feel like it's beautiful if you could have that balance because also it can make you understand what you learn and then you see it on set. So how it's done, because it is very different when you go to school and you sit on a class and you read from a book to when you're on a set and see how different things are getting done. So it's beautiful that you you learn your craft and then you know how to do it when you're on set. It's like, it's the perfect, I think the perfect uh, combination, but either or is good. There's not a right or wrong way. I think mostly is your drive and your passion, what is gonna make either or way be what you want or be successful, right? You don't have to be anything or do anything. You are an artist. This is so from, from you and who you are. 
I, I'm going to ask you a super hacky question, but I'm, I'm genuinely curious. What is the overlap of choreography and cinematography? Like, do, do you find that having a background in choreography influenced how you go about shooting? And I feel like, um, you know, you move your camera, you move your body, you see images moving, you move yourself, right? Like choreography has an inspiration. It comes from something, right? You hear you hear a song, you hear music, and then you make the, the, the steps out of it. It's the same thing. We read a script, then your images come, and then you got to make them fluid to create a composition, to create mm -hmm. a dance. So it's weird because I'm an engineer, and then I'm a dancer, and then people, it's like, the wrong way to be a cinematographer is like you could never expect but somehow that journey both journeys took me where i am and i think that you know being an engineer helps me for some things and then being a dancer helps me for something and then again just be who i am and the artist helps me for something different you know it's all what makes you unique you know um i don't think cinematographers get nearly as much credit as they deserve for, for pacing. I know editors get a lot of credit, I know directors get a lot of credit, but I think that cinematographers really are involved in the pacing that's happening in the shot. And some of the best cinematographers who, we, who we've spoken with on the show have a background in music or they're a musician or they have some sort of real, you know, sense of, I want to say, rhythm and timing. I would imagine that choreography probably brings a lot to that equation for you as well, too. Would you, would you say that choreography helps you with the rhythm and speed and absolutely i think it's um and i actually when i first started most of my work had a lot of dance mm -hmm. and still today a lot of people ask me if i for example i i had the interview to um be the dp for uh, p valley right which is an amazing show and uh, strippers so that's like the question number one they knew i had a dancing background and they asked me right away what would you shoot differently in the dances, right? So then that's where all this experience, and, and again, it's just, is you compose and you create these movies, you create with images as you create with your body. And um, I feel like it helps me a lot. What advice would you give yourself now, just looking back at the beginning of your career, when you first started out, when you got your first project, what, what advice would you tell yourself to, to either inspire you or to avoid a pitfall? Yeah, um, I think it's tricky, but if you can be picky, I should have been pickier. I think try to hone in on what you, what the work, the kind of work you want to be doing in the future, like do that. You know what I mean? And that might be different from what it's going to be 20 years from now, but at least try to stick with what you want to do. Cause I think again, you can get more invested and do better work when you really care about it, which I know this is like financially, it's like a, it's hard to be picky, to especially at the beginning, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is why I wasn't picky because <laughs> I had to just put food on the table. But if you can try to try to do that. Uh, there's an infomercial in everybody's closet, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I think it just comes down to shooting as much as possible because even today, I, you still, you learn every time you're on set. So I think just shoot as much as possible. Uh, I'm sure all of us did thousands of freebies. I still do the, the odd one if it's like a really cool project. And um, you tend to get caught up in trying to keep up with the Joneses and try and follow something like the style that's popular, the gritty, dirty style and a recent learning for me is like you just just do your own thing it'll it's makes you happier ultimately and it's better like you're going to do a better job and that's uh it's the way forward for sure i would say that um you should not worry about what anyone else is doing i would also say that editing your own footage is a great way to learn uh mm. how to be a better shooter because you'll learn really quickly all of your mistakes because you're handing it off to an editor 
who has to basically deal with what you just gave them. Mm. I think that was, that was an important step for me too. I watched a lot of my footage at first and I got a lot of feedback from editors early on. And I asked for that feedback to know what I was doing right and wrong. And so that was, that was extremely helpful. And I think I would also recommend having a great bit of patience because this business is a roller coaster and things won't happen for a while. And then a lot of things will happen all at once. And I think having a sort of confident Zen mentality will help go a long way. The overnight success story, 20 years in the making. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. That, that's... We know a lot of those. <laughs> uh, all right, uh, Anna, how, how about you? Shoot your project like it's the last one you're going to shoot. Uh, because, <laughs> it, you know, it might be. Not just that, but it's like you only get one chance. The day is over, and then you get, don't get to shoot those things anymore. It's done. So it's like you're living your passion every day. So might as well enjoy it to the fullest, right? Because you're so blessed to have that chance. So I think that if you find that grateful and enjoying it again, like if it was your last one, then every day is the last one and every day. So you always be giving your hundred percent all the time into, into your images, into your process. And then one step at a time, right? It's like you are where you're supposed to be. There's nothing left when you rush so much, right? Um, mm. We all want this so bad, right? But trust in your process and trust in who you are and your passion, right? Um, so if you just do one day, one thing, if you keep going one step, you know, you don't have to see what's on the top. You just have to see one step over and for sure you'll get to the top. So I think maybe that would be my, my thing because it takes some time, but the, the next thing you know, you're living your dream. That's really great advice. In fact, actually, all of that, that was a really eclectic, wonderful four different bits of advice that uh, I, I think that anyone at any point in their career can take that, not just necessarily at the beginning. So I, I think that's really wonderful. So my next question is something that everyone has a different technique for, but it's, it's something I, I think a lot of people need to hear how you do it, especially when you're working on a longer form project like a TV series. But even if you're working on a movie or even a short film, how do you track the visual arcs that you're creating? And the visual arcs could be the way you're moving the camera. It could be the lensing. Do you have a specific method? Do you mark up a script? Do you use scriptation? Do you, some people have told us that they, they build a, literally a PowerPoint presentation scene by scene. I'm just curious. This is like as technical as we're going to get, but I'm just curious what your technique is. And let's start again, again with, with Anna, Anna if we could, could and go, go the other, other way. way. Yeah, I'm gonna use a project, so maybe so you want it's more clear, more concrete. But um, for example, we did the last season of Black Lightning. You know, we are alternating the piece, right? That also it's a challenge because it's two artists doing the same. But we created mm -hmm. a little book and we set out on a mood and on a style. And as the story had an arch, we were gonna do that. So for example, our hero on season four was devastated. They had just blew up Freeland, which was his city. Everything was wrong. The bad people were winning. So we started with that. We started making feel the superhero, Black Lightning, and his character, Jefferson, feel small in the frame. And everything mm. was bluer around him, right? Like you could always see his framing was, he could feel, you know, higher so he could feel lower. He was smaller on the frame. He was against stuff because he was having a hard time. He wanted to give up. He didn't want to be the superhero anymore. So we mm. focused on that while his enemy was thriving. Everything was great, right? He had his wealthy, famous, so he was brighter and gold colors. We give him a lot of space on the frame. He could be powerful, lower angles. So that's how the story began. And we focus on that. So every day, like you said, I do work with expectation and then we change the director. So you, again, you, your mission is to protect the look of the show. 
make sure that that arch happens no matter what director comes to work with you. So we established, you know, how the arc was going to go. So by the end of the, the, the season, right, of course, the good, the good guys win, the bad guy loses. So we make an arch as well as cinematography. And then Jefferson, even though he kept being more bluer because that's his color, um, he became bigger in frame. His blue became not like a like feeling depressed or like a lonely kind of blue, you know what I mean? But feeling empowering, right? And then Tobias, which was the bad guy that started losing again, his yellow became a little bit more greener, right? You know, mm. the, and again, so we start changing the power dynamic between this, the, between the frames and the lighting. And then again, throughout the season, as many characters or people or newer people or kind of ups and down that we had, our cinematography suffered those same ups and down, right? Uh, we have different characters and if we kind of gave every character a color or try to give him a color, or when they were together, which one was more dominant, right? Was it when they would face each other, who was winning at the moment? Do we make this feel blue because Jefferson is um, winning over Tobias is now the time, or do always it Tobias overpowering Black Lightning? So how can we, in a way, always represent the arch that the TV show is going? And again, how can we keep that continuity throughout? And always, again, just, working with the directors to make their vision come through through our visual language, never losing that essence that we created at the beginning. And we also can have different, you know, we can modify it by the time, because again, this is such a creative, um, you know, profession or such a effort, it's a team effort. So as the writers write, as the show evolves, as the characters evolve, then we can come up with something new, right? Or we can, again, say, oh, maybe just this episode. For example, I had one of my episodes, we have, they, we told the story of Brianna Taylor. So what I did is we didn't have zooms, like a zoom in and zoom out on our show, but I shot mm -hmm. it like that to make it feel the audience like what we see on the news. It's like that footage, more a reality oh. kind of show. And that's the only episode that has that is because we were kind of recreating that very important um, event. So I just showed those scenes with zooming, with sapping, you know, sapping the zoom, zoom out, like mm. a reality, kind of like on a reality kind of feeling. So we changed throughout, but always maintaining that arch and that look that we fake, you know, that the beginning we established. That's amazing. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. That's so awesome. <laughs> okay, uh, let's, Bryant, follow that. <laughs> No pressure. Um, well, I, I think I'll, I'll maybe speak a, a little bit more to documentaries because it's it's a different process, right? I think the only time that you're sort of thinking about those things or, you know, when, when you have control over anything might actually be like during maybe an interview. And that's if you're doing interviews. And so with that, it's, it's a situation of, you know, whether or not you're doing it, what, what kind of space you're doing it in. Um, do all of these things need to, you know, feel like they're in the same world? Do they need to feel separated? You know, what side are we, what side are we looking at here? And it's completely dependent on the subject. But, you know, Verite is a little bit of a different animal in that way. I'm typically working with natural light. I'm not adding a, a ton, if at all. And so it's really, you know, whoever I'm with, I'm trying to tap into their, their mind, their mood, and allow the camera to just sort of be an extension of my being there. And I just understand that I am, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a representative for the audience. And so if the audience is looking through this lens, what do they want to see? What would be interesting to them? And so it's more of an on the fly thinking in that way uh, than anything else. 
Well, with your director, when you're working on a documentary, do you set out ahead of time and come up with maybe a, uh, a rough set of rules? Documentary is like such a such a wide net to throw over something. And, you know, it's not it's not one genre. You could be talking about Frederick Wiseman. You could be talking about Errol Morris. You know, the, the, stylistically, you can go any way you want with documentary. There's so many ways to do it. So how, maybe to modify this question for documentary work, like how do you go about building, you know, your palette? Um, I think that comes down to a very deep discussion with my directors in understanding our limitations going into a situation, getting the best understanding of what that situation will be so that we can go in with what we need to tell the story properly, but not be in the way of anyone doing what they would normally be doing. Because it's already distracting having a camera in front of you and having, you know, a sound person or something like this. So really, really depends on, you know, how we want things to feel, especially if we're going to choose, like, the difference between primes or zooms. That auto, that right there just limits the, the DP in terms of where they can actually be and what you'd be able to see in any given circumstance. It's going in with as much knowledge as you can and being prepared mm-hmm. as much as you can, but also not going in there to cause any kind of distraction or disturbance into what's naturally going to happen in front of you. Mm -hmm. So I'm self-taught and I'm sure everyone else has been, maybe this is a a pro for film school. What I've taught myself is I read the script. I write down kind of key points and what kind of arc I see visually lensing colors, et cetera. And then I break it down into like a Google sheets or like a spreadsheet about like scenes like categories like lighting, camera movement, et cetera. And then when the one-liner or some sort of schedule gets put out, I like shuffle it because it's you never get the ability or the luxury of shooting it chronologically. So you'll end up mm. shooting like the second last scene on day one. And it's really, that's, I find the hardest part to keep the consistency going and the arc solid. So I guess just if you can prep well enough and uh, for me, I have to write it down and break it up and make sure I keep referencing it as we go. So that's, and it's self-taught. I'm not sure if it's the best way or. I don't know that there is, there, every person I've asked this question of every single one has a different answer. I don't, I don't think that there's like a way that film schools teach people to do this. I, I, I and, and I've heard other people talk about like building uh, the spreadsheet. I found scriptation to be fascinating because you can sort of do that. But then when you get the new versions of the script, it just applies it all so that you can keep it in one place. But, you know, some people don't want to do that. And it makes total sense. I take a lot of pride in my shot lists. They're pretty well laid out. They've got notes on them, right? They're, it's in a Google sheet. I'll make tabs for every shoot day. I've done like a handful of features. So I, I try to keep track of all my days. Um, on the show I'm shooting now, it's the first time I have a second unit DP and I'm really excited about that collaboration. So we're trying to make sure we're on the same page. I've got a massive lookbook for this show as I do every long form project mm-hmm. that sets the rules. Like our eyelines are changing. The show I'm on, spans a century of time (laughs) so Mm. and it's got six storylines and every storyline has a color so i'm really excited about that so now in my shot list there's a new column with like what color are we in right like what color world are we in um and then this is a little much but on every feature i shoot and what i'm going to do on this show every night after i wrap my dits are always sending me screen grabs like they always airdrop me screen grabs during the day so i have every setup uh, hopefully showing the eyelines and things And at night between days, I make a grid of the entire movie in order so that every, all the department heads can see what setups we have in story order. 
Um, so I'll have it pre-made and then at the end of the day, I'll just throw in the setups from the day and you can see how the movie's evolving and changing. And Whoa, that's that so is smart. super cool. I have never heard of anyone who does that. That's well, really that's awesome. So crazy. <laughs> that is the smartest thing I've ever heard. I'm doing that from now. I'm stealing that from you. That's it's a, a lot idea. of extra work though. I'm sure it's like, oh, I just did my whole day. Now I got to arrange all of my, my, my screenshots screen for every single stuff, setup. So. Yeah. <laughs> if your DIT can be sending you them, like at least pull them for you, then you're good. Um, yeah. I think costume, production design, everyone can see that. So I'm going to do this on this one too. And just that way you can, going into the next day, you can think about what you what you did. We, we've reached almost the end of this fantastic interview. We have, we have really just sort of one question left. The question is, where do you see your career going from here? Where, where do you see yourself going? You could also say, where do you want your career to go from here? What, where, would you, where would you like to see your career going? Yeah, I don't know where I see myself going because I don't think we can plan any of this. But I, I do want it to be, this is my first TV show. I'm really excited. I want to do TV. I'm a huge fan of Anna in that sense, too. Like, I just want to do more shows. <laughs> um, and just keep climbing the budget ladder and keep working with directors that I love and new directors with, you know, incredible vision and really just keep focusing on narrative. That's where my heart is. Yeah, it's a tough question. I literally love commercial, like all aspects of filmmaking, um, but I think I'm starting to lean more towards narrative. So if I could do one bigger movie a year and then fill the rest of that with commercials, because I like the variety of commercials, even though they're not as like meaningful and as an end product, uh, I like the variety and the creativity. But uh, yeah, if I can start just being a bit more picky with the uh, jobs I take and I just had a, my wife and I just had a baby six weeks ago. So I've got to oh, start. Oh man, congratulations. Congratulations. I, I yeah. don't know where you're at. Oh boy. That's why I'm, uh, I'm super self-conscious of my uh, lighting and my, my Zoom here. <laughs> I would normally be facing the other way, but I had to give her space to do stuff in the background. <laughs> um, Is this your first child? Yes. Yeah. Oh wow. wow. You're, you're going through a big, big life change, change too, right? Yeah, now, too. It's been, and I've been like, when he was five days old, I had a 10 day travel job and, oh, man. uh, I've been away a lot so far, but I'm trying to be around a bit more. Good, Good call. call. Like Julie said, it's kind of unpredictable, but I've really been enjoying shooting the variety of documentaries that I've been doing and working with the directors I've been working with. I'm always interested to work with new directors and to explore new mediums too. When I do get the chance to shoot anything that's scripted or that's commercial, I really do enjoy kind of switching gears and challenging myself in a different way and sort of utilizing all the skills that I learned from shooting documentaries and being so present um, and reactive um, mm. to a different kind of a practice. And so I really love applying, especially the kind of operating I like to do when I'm shooting docs. I like to do that on uh, scripted and uh, commercial work also. But I also like putting the camera down on something solid too. <laughs> but I really do like, I, I, I kind of like doing mixing, uh, mixing those kinds of styles. So. Um, I hope to be doing more of that. I mean, I can't say, I can I mean, I, the happiest where I am right now, I am in love with what I am and what I'm doing right now. Um, but I do have many dreams. So I feel like I, um, would love to like Julia and all of you just, you know, go farther, get better, always as a DP. I think this is the only profession that you get better because you do it every day. You cannot, you have to get better at it. So have the chance to keep growing as a DP is, and as a person, collaborating with more directors, you know, bigger, bigger um, projects. And I would love to switch a little bit to features, to watch features, just because I feel like it's good to have more time 
to do your art and maybe make bold choices sometimes. And just, you know, in TV, you have to deliver certain quality of certain things. They have to make sure they're there because it's TV. So I feel like maybe feature can give me a little bit more of that freedom. So it would be nice to kind of go to that route again. I think also I would love to give back and maybe I work with a Nigerian group of young filmmakers that don't have access to um, to film careers. or So we just do like Zoom calls and then I invite my teachers or friends okay. or directors that I work with. And then they just, you know, and they're doing great things. You know, they're shooting commercials or little information. And then, you know, I feel like it'd be nice to give back, go back to my country or give back because it, it has been so such a beautiful experience, you know, to be a cinematographer how great that you can give back to the people that may want the same thing. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I, I think that is, especially anyone who's ever had a mentor or had someone in this industry who kind of hoisted you onto their shoulders. Uh, I think that there's a real sense of re- responsibility, at least for me, because I spent, I spent a decade working on sets and I know I never would have gotten anywhere that I went if it hadn't been for all those people who, who helped me along the way. And I think that this industry is actually, uh, maybe not unique, but it's very special in the fact that there is a real tendency to want to give back and try to help the next generation and try to help elevate what everybody's doing. And so uh, I think that's a wonderful place to leave it. And uh, if people uh, watching this or listening to this want to see your work online, want to interact with you on social media, do you have a website or Instagram, TikTok, whatever that you can uh, send people to? I do. Um, My website is www.anamortegui.com. And then my Instagram is at mile9. Those are my two places. And wait, can you do it as an improvisational rap? Sorry. Sea shanty. I'm sorry. Sorry. Could, could you do everything now for your for how to find you as an improvisational rap? That would be perfect. Thanks. Oh, my God. You're putting me on the spot. This is like when I was on Freestyle Love Supreme. They put me on the spot and gave me a word to rap to. And I was like, I'm frozen. I don't know what to do. Um, you can find me at uh, bryantfisher.com. And my Instagram is bryantfisherdp. Uh, Instagram's got it all. So at Byron Cotman, Cotman with a K. And uh, you can check out the latest feature trailer, Demonic. It's really sweet. It comes out in uh, two weeks. Nice. Where's it coming out? Where can, where can people see it? Uh, it's got US theatrical release and then iTunes, I believe. So like VOD. Cool. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, Julia, how about you? Uh, JuliaSwain.net is my website and JuliaSwain at JuliaSwain on all the social media things. All right, Ben, now let's do our thank yous and goodbyes. So, <laughs> so uh, hey, thank you all for participating in this fantastic first ever live multi-person interview for the Cinematography Podcast. This is this is really fantastic. Uh, special thanks to uh, Hot Ride Cameras for, for hosting us here today. Uh, special thanks to the people at Impact 24 for, for helping to arrange and, and set this all up. Really appreciate all of you and all of your work. Thank you so much for uh, bringing your, your knowledge and experience to us. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.